different. So a uh, big plug for the chieftain, go watch his videos if you want to learn more about tanks. But he goes into the survivability onion uh, pretty in depth. Um, so armor is actually one of the last layers of the onion. If you're now relying on your armor to protect you, you're in trouble. And it doesn't matter what you want. Armor can always be defeated by something. Um, you can't hit what you can't see. Uh, so uh, don't be seen. So things like camouflage, uh, being having the better optics so that you get to engage first because whoever fires first usually wins. It gets really, really complex, which is why uh, Western countries invested so much in things like fire control and optics starting back in the 1960s with the development of laser rangefinders and stuff like that because we knew we were going to be outnumbered but we would be fighting defensively and so better fire control would give us the ability to see first shoot first win um so are there any other armor questions um can I ask you a really silly question and i i know the answer but i keep getting i, I get this question from about five people every day and keep saying oh no let's defer this to, to sometime when we have raver on and let's defer this to sometime when we have when we have raver on what is the use of reactive armor why do people literally sta literally strap little bombs all over their tank to defend themselves from other incoming bombs? Okay, so the first generation, first couple of generations of ERA was designed to explode upon impact and use that explosion to disrupt the formation of the, of the heat rounds EFP. Uh, that was almost useless against a Sabo round, uh, would go right through it, uh, there was nothing there. To, to work against the Sabo. The latest generation of heavy ERAs uh, use the explosion to, on steel plates to also induce shear so that the, the shearing of, of the steel plate, <clears throat> the exterior steel plate of the ERA panel, then hits the side of the penetrator, hopefully you know, cutting it like a blade. Um, there was even talk about using rubber as a, as as a as a type of non-explosive reactive armor where you've got a hard steel plate that's mounted to the hull it's not going to move you've got your rubber and then you've got another steel plate floating on that so that when it's hit it induces shear against the uh penetrator crypto um since since february um i've seen obviously well we've all seen a lot of tanks um and this is coming from someone who's quite ignorant of military things like that but um, tanks always seems, I don't know, quite outdated, even, even though some of these tanks are top of the line, like extremely advanced. It still seems crazy to me that we're still fighting wars in tanks. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure whether this is a question or a, or a statement, but it, it always did kind of confuse me that people were just piling into coffins. <laughs> so, artillery can shoot a lot farther than a tank can, but what other battlefield system can see a target up to say uh, whatever the horizon is based on your elevation. Spot a target because it's got modern optics and fire control, day, night, any weather, and put a round into it within say four seconds, five seconds, you know, 30 seconds of, of, of finding that target. There is no other battlefield system that has that ability to apply direct fires that fast with that much uh, effect. I mean, we're talking 120 millimeters, you know, that's artillery scale weapons able to be laid on to a target within seconds of it being identified to within any range that the tank can see. Excellent answer. I'm no longer ignorant. Okay, so um, another silly question. Why 
does a tank have so much shorter a range than, than an artillery piece, right? Because it's a self-propelled howitzer. It looks very similar to how a tank looks like. Direct fire versus indirect fire. I mean, uh, uh, you can ramp a tank up so it's facing upslope and then do max elevation on the gun and, and load around and it'll go, you know, well past 10 kilometers, depending on what you're firing. It could go way, way, way past that. Like a Sabo, a giant dart, it's going to go for a long time if you uh, misindex it, uh, which I've seen happen. <clears throat> so that's why the, the tank's role is, is direct fire. It's a giant, armored, scary super sniper. Thank you, Raver. Um, it seems like Twitter might be back up. Uh, Shapiro? I mean, if Raver was done, I could talk about ships to keep us going until Twitter comes back online, if you want. Oh, no, it is It is actually online. No, um, I... And I is, need you to go away. Yeah, you go, you go eat breakfast, Raver. Thank you very much. I think we all learned a lot about tanks now. Um, sorry, I'm just trying to process this because it looks like it's going to half up and not completely up uh very confusing uh but yeah ladies and gentlemen if you can see twitter uh try to retweet the space and um maybe we'll get more people join us but actually we we kept pretty steady throughout which was very surprising to me it just means that everybody was very much engaged with uh, all the stuff that raver was saying which i'm very happy to hear um uh Sorry, I thought I saw some, a hand up, but clearly I have imagined it. Never mind. Um, Twitter's still down for me, and I've caught a three-day ban on Facebook, so I'm currently uh, social media list. Well, you're, you're here with us. Oh, My Twitter's down too. Hmm, interesting. I, it looks like it's sort of a rolling blackout. Where occasionally you can kind of get back in. Uh, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see if this, uh, if this sticks. I'm seeing that it's apparently still down for most. But somehow I managed to get in through the through the gaps and reload the page. Shocking! I'm not the only one. There's there's new new stuff popping on from uh, all over Europe and North America. Interesting. Anyway, um, Shipper, do you want to give us a little bit of an update of uh, what you saw in the Black Sea uh, recently, other than those ships launching uh, cruise missiles at Venezia? Yeah, I can give you probably about fifty ships positions and updates. No, that's probably too many because um, okay. I think we're just going to lose the <laughs> lose the focus okay. a little bit. Um, you know how it is because every, everybody who's not you, who's not a ship position expert, won't really know how it's looking like uh, or you know be able to imagine so many ships. Um, actually, we have a question for you: How busy has the Sea of Azov been lately? Because is it true that there's more Russian military ships, more Russian naval assets in the Sea of Azov as of late? Um, well, there's always been a contingent in there there's but recently there's mainly been like an anti-submarine warfare corvette a couple of mine hunters and a couple of large salvage ships but aside from that we haven't really seen many large-ish quote-unquote large-ish warships like uh, Grigorovich's or uh, Sviasks we've mainly just been seeing those granted that could be slightly wrong on the Shviast, but we definitely haven't seen the largest units or the kilos going up. And actually, quick question. So sometimes when the cruise missiles are launched, um, a lot of the NATO, uh, let's say, uh, reconnaissance assets over the Black Sea, right? Planes in this case, not not, not surface vessels, um, tend to go kind of dark for a little bit, tend to turn off their transponders for a little bit. Um, a, has this happened today, if you happen to know? And B, why would they do that? So there could be, there's 
probably multiple reasons for this. Um, so one I'm about to give you might not be correct. So in terms of this morning, I haven't seen any aircraft go dark. Uh, so that's that first answer. The second answer is there's a possibility that they might go dark because they fear it could be a surface-to-air missile launch, just as a, you know one of those out there. Because if you're when you get a detection of a launch, sometimes it's hard to tell if it's going to be a surface-to-air missile or a land attack cruise missile or an anti-ship missile. Because yes, radar's good, but you can't exactly pinpoint where it's coming out of the ship, which is the problem. Um, so they'll usually get an IR detection or they'll detect the fire control radar or well that's if they're firing surface to air not sure about land attack because i'm pretty sure they just pit, put in the gps and away they go but i think it's because when they fire when they see ir they'll go dark turn away just in case you know it's bound for them right fair enough makes sense um oh axel's back that means that at least some people can re-access the space that's excellent yeah, mine's not working. And also, by the way, I was, I was joking with the 50. It's probably about 15, 20. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Axel, welcome up. You missed all the fun. Okay, what did I miss, gentle people? I see the shipyard is back. You missed... Hello, mate. The shipyard is back. You missed a Twitter blackout, uh, whereby nobody could actually access Twitter for half an hour. Um, and nevertheless, we kept exactly the same numbers in the space. Everybody stayed around because nobody could do anything else on Twitter. <laughs> you have to be kidding, right? No, seriously, seriously. We started off with uh, sort of 255 and we ended on 252, I think, uh, with half an hour of a complete Twitter blackout. Well, come on. Let's put it this way. Maria Aid's water report survives Twitter blackout. We should tweet this out. Um, no, it was great. Uh, Raver explained some stuff about tanks. Uh, why Abrams are the best and why they're far superior to Leopard 2s. <laughs> and so he should say, despite the fact that, uh, shall we say, uh, the gunning of the Leopard 2 and its movement has always beaten uh, everything out of the M- M1A Abrams. But uh, that's okay. That's fine. They are both with different strengths and weaknesses. But one weakness Leopard does not have is, is its gunning at speed. Which is what you need for advice. So, Raver was a lot more nuanced than that, don't worry. Raver? Hey, Axel, um, the Germans refuse to use a DU round. Uh, They use a tungsten cobalt round, which is actually more toxic, which just gives me the giggles every time I I talk about it. I know. I'm with you, Raver. I'm with you. It's completely solid bullshit. I agree. But the the American M829A3 and now the A29A4 give Abrams absolutely unmatched gun power when it comes to actual armor penetration. The German gun's got more velocity, but it's firing a point right around. Hey, I'm I'm completely with you as to penetration. I'm, uh, I'm I'm absolutely with you in terms of the gunning power. I'm looking at what the Leopard 2 does when it is advancing at speed and shooting. And that's where um, the Leopard 2 is a very good attack tank. That's all. Oh, yeah. It, it, it's, a, it's a very good tank. Um, like I said, uh, uh, my analysis, I put the, the Leopard 2 and the Abrams. They're the only real two top-tier tanks in the world. The rest have either not been updated to keep pace or, or just have other design flaws, in, in my opinion. Uh, one area where I uh, think Abrams has an advantage, a distinct advantage, is urban combat. The the lower caliber barrel 
uh, makes them much more maneuverable uh, gun-wise on streets. Um, but yeah, they are both top tier, you know, top shelf uh, tank selection. By the way, that's a very good point that you mentioned it, that that's true. The, uh, uh, I would agree on the lower cavalry, but uh, approach and it's uh, used in urban combat. But then again, the Leopard 2 was never designed really for it. It is really a main battle tank for the open space and for gaining space. Uh, for urban combat, the Germans would have always relied on, um, say, higher powered IFVs. And uh, obviously, the Americans doing most of the urban combat. So I agree with you. What is interesting, however, just because you said the, the two main battle tanks, I still really like the upgraded uh, versions, even the not not the very new ones, which are now planned, but the upgraded versions of the Challenger. I think with its defensive capacity and its massive gun, if you approach an urban environment and you have essentially that level of survivability, the Challenger is a fantastic tank. Yeah, but the, the the gun itself has massive problems. I'm just not a fan of the L11 series of rifled 120 millimeters. I think the smoothbore is is the better option. Uh, the, plus, it's got the two piece ammunition drawbacks that I'm not really a fan of. And the British government simply has not invested in their armored force. And so, the the challengers that we watched roll into Iraq in 2003 are now going to be operating in a completely different threat environment. And while Dorchester and Burlington are really, really good armors, uh, the rest of the tank hasn't kept pace. Which is why uh, the British Army decided in its program to now provide what's, I think, I'm not quite sure, I think Sir Brit could help us there, but I think it was at least six years that they'd been advocating for the challengers to be upgraded in the form and in the program. They now finally got sorted at the end of the last year, only to be superseded by what now is the impact of the war. Yeah, see, those plans, though, are, are still, as far as I know, and so I'd be glad to be corrected, just plans. I don't think there are any uh, upgraded, uh, truly modern challengers uh, in correct. existence at this point. You're correct. They only have the, I think they have a couple of test vehicles, but we should ask our British friends. I think the test vehicles were at Bobbington and they were shooting and they were trying and testing. But uh, yes, this program is still, so to say, being executed. Anyway, I got to eat. Y'all have fun. Thank you very much for doing this, Reva. Much appreciated. So, Thank you, Reva. Send us 500 M1 Abrams and everybody will be happy. No. 800, 300 to Poland for the Fridays and 500 to Ukraine, please. You know, while, while putting in an order, let's just do it all at once. Anti. Did uh, Raver really just step down? Yeah, I think he had to go off to work. Oh, well, I, I was going to ask him about uh, what so he oh, thought the here. problem was ahead, with Le- Leclerc and the uh, latest uh, Merkava. Oh, guys, give me a second to get chew my food. No worries. Okay, the Leclerc has the technology or did, uh, say, circa 2000. I don't know how much the French have invested in keeping pace, but there's not very many of them, and it is a defensive tank. It uses a three-man crew. It's not capable of sustained offensive operations. It's got the exact same problems maintenance and crew fatigue-wise that the T-Series tank do. And again, France did that to cut down on peacetime manning costs. If you do not go to a three-man crew for combat effectiveness, you want a four-man crew for that. Um, so it is it is a good tank, but it is not top tier. The Merkava, I think, is a poorly designed waste of space. It's got a really good gun, really good optics, but cup your hand, 
slightly elevated so that it's like it's shaped like a U. That's the armored cup that your crew, your tank crew has to sit in. The shorter that cup is, the more protected you are, the heavier your, arm, your armor can be for a given weight. So if you've got, only got 10 tons to devote to armor, the shorter that cup is, the thicker that armor. The Merkava, by putting its engine in front of the crew, forces that armor to be thinned out and run down the sides far longer than it would need to be in a rear engine tank. And I know the Israelis are like, oh, the engine's there to protect the crew. No, BS. Most of that engine is going to be a void space. It's not going to stop a sable. All they've done is thin out their armor. If the Merkava had to face a modern tank, the equivalent of, say, a Leopard or an Abrams on the field of battle, its front and side armor protection is inferior to either of those. I think it's a bad design. Um, it may work for what Israeli Israel faces in its own local environment, but globally, it is a dead end. I, I find that shocking because uh, I've always, I mean, uh, you know, years back, I, I sort of, uh, I, I, I don't remember what I was reading at the time, but I sort of got the picture that the uh, Israelis put a premium on uh, on the on crew protection, but uh, I guess that's uh, subjective to the uh, combat situ- situations they usually use the Merkava in. Correct, and a lot of that is fanboy. Now, the Merkava is really, really heavy as a result to try to thicken their armor, they really pumped up the weight so that they can keep that armor thickness up a little bit, but they're still not getting the same thickness over the same area for a given amount of weight that you're going to get out of a Western tank because they've extended that cup out so much. It's also affected the mobility of the Merkava. She is not a greyhound. Um, She is a tortoise. She will get there. Just be prepared to wait. Bring a lunch. (laughs) Oh, geez. Okay, th- thank you so much uh, for that. Uh, I I got a much better picture now of the of the field. Thank you. So, Raver, to pick up on the Merkava, right? You said that it's not going to stop a saber, but a do um, let's say the very Soviet design tanks actually shoot those, or or not so much, or um, alternatively, um, does Merkava offer quite a good protection against things like let's say RPGs that they're very likely to face. Uh, on a on a on a typical basis uh, from the sort of environment that they occupy, that they operate in. Yes, the Soviet design tanks have sabos, uh, two piece ammunition, so they were shorter and fatter. But you know what the Challenger is going to fire. I prefer the longer, thinner weight to diameter or length to diameter ratio. Um, but yeah, I mean the the Syrians only had T seventy two, so the Merkava for its local environment is very well protected. I just don't think it's top tier on a global scale. And yes, it's very well protected against uh, uh, RPGs and even ATGMs. Uh, was it when Israel invaded Lebanon the last time, 2006-ish? Uh, the Merkava one, twos, and threes uh, took a beating, but I don't think anybody in a Merkava four actually died. That's the the latest and greatest version of it, and it was very well protected against heat rounds. So it's not good in a tank-on-tank battle necessarily, but they're unlikely to face those. It's very good in the sort of combined arms operations that they usually use them in, right? Oh, it's, it, it's probably good tank versus tank, you know, depending on what the parameters of the fight would be. It's just not top tier. It's it's a second shelf design like the like the Charlie Two or the Leclerc or the Arete or the T90. Design drawbacks 
that that maybe due to to local concerns or local design choices, but they keep it off the top shelf. Thank you, Raver. Uh, Danny. Hey guys, the, uh, I was thinking to give Raver the opportunity to finish his breakfast, and I, I can tell you a little bit of news that I've uh, just read. Um, there's a uh, um, MQ nine MQ nine Reaper drone, uh, an American Reaper drone that was stationed in uh, Romania at the 71st uh, airborne base uh, actually looks like it crashed into the field next to the base um, and it was destroyed. Uh, information is uh, coming in that it was unarmed. It was just doing a test flight and there's a little bit of footage of it burning in the field. And uh, yeah, uh, it's been known that at least for two years, Reaper drones have been stationed there. So I guess uh, they were flying it to train, maybe, people. And it looks like it, it fell out of the sky. So uh, I'm, I'm only saying this, that you'll probably see propaganda about it uh, from Russian channels, is what I'm expecting. So Thanks, Danny. Yeah, I'm sure that we're, we're going to see uh, uh, somebody in Russia saying, you know, the, uh, they, just, they just couldn't live. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome back to the Water Report. Today is Bastille Day, the 14th of July. It is 3 p.m. in Central Europe, 4 p.m. Kiev, 2 p.m. London, 9 a.m. New York, 6 a.m. in California. Uh, if you're anywhere else, uh, check your phone. You're literally staring right at it. It will tell you the time. This is the Water Report. We're here talking about 24-7 uh, since February 24th, the wholesale Russian invasion of Ukraine and the genocide that the Russians are committing in Ukraine. Earlier this morning, uh, Russians have struck the western Ukrainian city of Vinitsa, or the western central Ukrainian city of Vinitsa, with three cruise missiles. Four others were deterred previously by Ukrainian air defenses. Um, and have struck a city square, an office building, and killed at least, to what we know now, 20 people, including three children, with many dozens more wounded. Um, if someone can try to come back up, so I know that I'm not speaking to no one, that would be great. Um, if you could also be so kind as to share and retweet the space. Um, actually, I can't bring you up. It only gives me the option to remove you, and I don't want to do that. Um, be so kind as to share and retweet the space. That would be great. Uh, click that big blue button in the bottom right corner of the screen, and we will get you right up. The last thing we were talking about before we suddenly crashed um, was ha. Huh, now I can add the axle. Um, uh, was about the MQ9. Is it drone that crashed in Romania? That was the last thing we were on about, I think. Um, right, Axel, are you up? Can you see? I can hear you. I can see everything. And Excellent. It's like but take it yes, away. And I can hear you, which is good. Now, I've done I've done the timestamp. I've done the introduction. I need to tweet out the space, and I can't do that while talking. Um, so if you want to carry on, or shall we go to Timu? We can go to Timu, and then Peace for Ukraine. Excellent. Timu, go ahead. So, yes, and Merkava, it has, because it has engine on the front, it can have a back door, so... Merkava, it also is kind of also in a way infantry fighting vehicle, but so because you have a relatively safe entrance at the back compared to other tanks top entrances, but that compromise it comes with other costs. So it's a design for Israeli needs 
how they use it and so on. Yeah, that makes uh, that makes good sense. Thank you, Timo. Um, I guess Raver's gone by now, but you're you're right, and that that's another function that they use the tank for, right? And uh, making it a little bit more flexible uh, than normal. Uh, peace for Ukraine. Hi again, uh, I just wanted to say that I, I could hear and uh, and uh, all was well. It, it's still there's a bit of glitches when trying to tweet out the space, but. Uh, I just saw yours, so I've just retweeted, I guess. Uh, if we all here go and do the same, it will help improve the space. And um, yeah, let's carry on the good fight. Thank you. Obrigado, peace for Ukraine. Thank you very much. Uh, yes, please do that. Please do that. Please share and retweet the space. Uh, if you can't manage to get it tweeted out, just try to at least retweet it from somewhere else. Um, that'd, be, that'd be fantastic. Get some visibility up. We only have 150 people now, so... Uh, uh, JJ. Good morning. Um, I was just reading some uh, Ukrainian news and um, there's an article I came across and it's a bit technical. So maybe you or Axel can help explain it. It says that um, Ukraine has become an associated member of the NATO's multilateral interoperability program. Right. So um, NATO joined that actually a few a few days ago. It's a consortium of a bunch of different NATO members. It's a bunch of different NATO members that aren't um, necessarily a part of NATO that have you know, initially joined that. And they, uh, Ukraine is the newest member. Austria and Switzerland are other European members. Uh, there's also countries like Australia and New Zealand in there. Uh, I think Finland and Sweden have been members for a very long time already. I think Finland and Sweden are members, pretty sure. Um, and, and this was all about getting uh, some NATO countries together with some non-NATO countries and enable their militaries to talk to each other better and cooperate on various missions as well as training programs uh, together. Um, Axel, is this a significant step for Ukraine to be joining this? Sorry, I did not hear a dang thing. I apologize. What was the question? So um, there's an announcement today that Ukraine has become an associate member of the NATO Multilateral Interoperability Program. I yeah, briefly explain good. what, the, what, what that is, but how significant yeah, is that? In preparation. If you adopt NATO standards for your armor and your procedures, uh, then interoperability is key. And that is one of the, um, say, precedents, so to say, to future NATO membership. This is what uh, I think... Gosh, when did the Finns start interoperability? Maybe 1994? Yeah, okay, it could be. I think it was definitely after... 19, in 1994, the Russian troops left Estonia, and at that point in time, the Finns didn't have that. If it's 95, great. Hey, yeah, well, I'm not far off then. <laughs> Is this something that will start to take effect immediately then and be of benefit to Ukraine? Uh, it's, a, it's a program, so... They are already, the thing is that the, the Ukrainian troops are already being provided currently with a lot of uh, NATO equipment, kit and the likes. So it's only uh, sensible and reasonable that they um, enter such a program because they are abiding by, since uh, the first Rammstein, the decision was made that NATO standard ammunition, NATO standard gunnery and uh, would be and, and, and also small arm would in future be what uh, ukraine shall be using uh, so that its full integration into the arsenal of democracy of the west uh, could continue successfully um at that point in time it was evident that they would have to enter the uh, um, 
oper interoperability circle. So that's completely normal. And it, it's not that it has immediate effect. What has immediate effect is operating with a kit. What, ha what is necessary is that you integrate with the procedures, the procurement procedures, the training procedures, the rollout, and uh, that they are doing it is just a continuation of the existing program. Great. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you, Axel. And uh, thank you, JJ, for, uh, for raising this. I've not previously noticed that, those news, but now I see that uh, there was an initial announcement on the uh, Ukrainian uh, news agency website a couple of days ago already, and somehow it slipped my, uh, it slipped my view altogether. Uh, thank you for bringing it up. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, anybody who would like to jump up and speak, ask a question, make a comment, uh, bring us any sort of news that we might have missed by now, uh, in all the commotion of Twitter being down, um, um, of Twitter being down, and then the space crashing unexpectedly, uh, it'd be fantastic if you jump up and uh, uh, talk to us a little bit. Um, peace free, isn't, it, don't, oh, isn't the only good thing that uh, whilst Twitter has today its first, uh, I don't know, when, when Twitter was last really down for something, um, somebody has to tell us this. I mean, somebody here needs to know this, I'm sure. But in the past few years, whenever that was the case, isn't it great that on a day like this, we at least have the biggest array and the biggest uh, stack of speakers from all corners of the earth having converged on Ukraine joining us. I think it's fantastic. We will fend this off easily. Yes, we will. Yes, we will. Uh, and just by the way, thank you very much, Ben. There's a number of speakers that we have coming up, a number of special guests coming up uh, later today. Uh, we will be hosting three uh, war reporters, first at uh, noon Eastern, that is uh, 6 p.m. Central European time, 7 p.m. Kiev will be joined by Irina Shev, who's a Ukrainian-born Portuguese journalist who's been stationed in Ukraine for much of the last four and a half months. Uh, she's currently in Portugal uh, for the last few days, uh, and she will be in Portugal still tonight as she's talking to us. Uh, but she has been all over Ukraine over the recent four and a half months, already was in Ukraine when the wholesale Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, started on February 24th and stayed going around uh, not just Kiev, but also Odessa and Mykolaiv in the south, in the southwest, in the southwest of Ukraine, uh, as well as to Kharkiv and Sumy and various parts of Donetsk and Luhansk Oblast as well. She'll be telling us um, all about her time in Ukraine over the past four and a half months and uh, her experiences as a war reporter. Then an hour later at 1 p.m. Eastern time, uh, 7 p.m. Central European time, 8 p.m. Kiev, we'll be joined by our Australian friend Bryce Wilson. Uh, as well as his partner, Guillaume Ptak, uh, who are stationed in Kramatorsk and uh, traveled to Bakhmut a couple of days ago. Yesterday, actually, were they in Sivetsk, if I remember correctly? And I think they're back in Bakhmut uh, either tomorrow, the day after tomorrow again. Uh, they're, they're traveling all around uh, that area, uh, around, based in Kramatorsk, all around uh, that JFL area in uh, Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts. Uh, and they'll be telling us about everything that they've seen in the last few days there. There were Mikolaev last week as well, but I think we already got our fill of all of that from Bryce a few days ago. Uh, so it'll be a very busy uh, afternoon or evening, depending on where you are in that respect. And then later on, later on at 7 p.m. Eastern time, already tomorrow in much of the world, uh, not in the Western Hemisphere, of course, will be joined by Mick Ryan, a retired uh, Major General of the Australian Army, tweets at War in the Future, um, War of the Future, sorry, War of the Future, um, 
and he'll be uh, discussing with us the both the situation on the ground in Ukraine on a you know high level military uh, basis as well as his prognoses for how the war uh, is going to unfold over the coming weeks in Ukraine. Uh, so starting at noon today uh, with Irina and then carrying on all the way until uh, the hours of the evening or even into tomorrow, depending on where you are, have a lineup of special guests. Already, of course, three hours ago, we were joined by um, uh, the uh, vice president, I believe, of the French branch of the Ukrainian World Congress. Uh, Volodymyr Kogutyak. Volodymyr Kogutyak, yes, exactly. Thank you, Ben. Uh, We had to... Uh, have Ben and uh, Peace for Ukraine to help out with a little bit of interpretation uh, while he was here uh, because not all of us speak French quite well enough to uh, be able to talk to him directly, nor Ukrainian. Uh, it was a very good uh, visit as well. He was telling us all about how he uh, drives both uh, charitable and activist projects for Ukrainians in France and for Ukraine in France uh, where he's based. Uh, so uh, a very busy Bastille day indeed today. Peace for Ukraine. Hello again, Mike Check. Thank you. Good, thank you. Um, I do not want to derail the subject. I just wanted to sort of relay a piece of uh, um, official communication debunking a, a sort of, um, what can I say, a piece of propaganda, misinformation, disinformation uh, that the Financial Times brought out yesterday with a very, very appealing title that was saying EU states sound alarm over Ukraine weapon smuggling. <laughs> yes, because Ukraine uh, indeed is not fighting a war against the horrendous aggressor. They are actually going to get rid of the weapons. They are being asking uh, for so long, uh, which is completely stupid and obnoxious on the on the first place to make such statement. But I'm happy that actually today there is uh, Peter Stano, uh, EU lead spokesperson for foreign affairs and security policy that um, provided an interview uh, and uh, basically said that um, uh, that type of information is false, is basically Russian propaganda and just uh, is there to cause uh, dissent uh, among the partners, to cause uh, some sort of distrust uh, where fingers potentially could be pointed and it's completely, completely false. In a nutshell, his communique states that the weapons to Ukraine have started even before the invasion. They were being shipped, they are being logged, they are being traced because everything that is sent out and shipped uh, follows a specific procedure, as it should. And that he ends his statement basically saying that uh, they trust completely in the Ukrainian government as it should, because they need these weapons. They are fighting for their own existence. They are fighting uh, a legal invasion. They are fighting a, a war to defend themselves and they trust entirely in the Ukrainian government. And there is no such alarm, no such distrust 
and therefore my conclusion he doesn't state it but he just basically says russian propaganda he states that very clearly i'm very happy for that what i'm not happy is financial times a so-called reliable source uh, quote unquote because now it's no longer a reliable source is uh, issuing this kind of articles based on no truth whatsoever um clickbait uh, stupidity bad faith are they being paid by russians to write these sort of articles i can think of all sorts of horrible horrible answers that financial times which used to be one of the sources i used to respect but now i'm just not going to follow or read or whatsoever i mean it's ridiculous i just wanted to bring that to as as piece of information but i'm happy it was clear statement i will i will um tweet about it send a nice nice message to financial times because um, basically it's unacceptable it just shows me that they're not a reliable nor trustworthy source when they publish this kind thank you thank you peace for ukraine um yeah it, it's a it's very disheartening when uh, serious um uh, news organizations uh, report on half-baked uh, on half-baked news like that, and especially in such a careless, imprecise manner. It's very, I'm very glad that the, the EU Commission spokesman uh, said them straight on that, and uh, that the matter has been appropriately resolved. Uh, Peace for Ukraine. Follow up. Yes, indeed. What I'm, I was just thinking while we were speaking because it's not the first, and I guess it won't be the last. We had a few cases in the past weeks of a few newspapers issuing this kind of of um, pieces of trash. I'm sorry, I have to call it. It's a piece of trash. It's not a piece of news. It's a piece of trash. Um, um, I wonder because, I mean, one of the bases of our democracies is the fact that we have free press, that we have fact checks, we have checks and balances, we have sources of information that are reliable and we used to be able to trust the press and these occasional occurrence of these type of articles in the let's say high institutions of free press that are uh, respectable or used to be respectable i wonder if this somehow is not also part of the undermining of our democracies, whereas um, by creating this sort of uh, articles that are easily, or not so easily, but at the later stage debunked, cause a distrust in the general public, or at least in the public that is still reading the press, to deviate people or readers from these sources, from these media to no longer distrust. And by creating this distrust, um, then people will turn around to other sources, less reliable perhaps, or uh, it seems that our world and our sources of what we used to call reliable sources of information seems to be narrowing uh, with these things, and and sometimes I wonder 
perhaps I'm just seeing bad uh, across everything, but um, I wonder if it's not also part of uh, the manipulation that we are suffering from uh, Russia and China and all the totalitarian regimes we are surrounded with. Um, it's just a question, Mark, or philosophy. I, uh, comments, please. Thank you, Beast. Um No, it is indeed... Um... It is indeed something that shows distrust in uh, the population at large, right? And any such ideas, you know, besides the content, can make it a lot more easy to um, for for other more organized campaigns uh, by Kremlin disinformation and disinformation sources uh, to then take hold, right? Because it also normalizes, how shall we say? It normalizes this uh, very disparate, very. Uh, decentralized, very uh, very much throwing a lot of shit at the wall approach that the Russian media tends to use whenever commenting on whatever story, right? And it makes it easier f- for them to make that approach seem more sensible, more normal, and it makes it easier for them uh, to then uh, persuade people, including people in Western countries, uh, that whatever it is that they're throwing at the wall, uh, should indeed stick, um, and it makes it easier for them to make uh, their political overtures and to make their angle of reporting and to make their misinformation a popular and popularly acclaimed and popularly received um, uh, attitude, right? And it doesn't take a whole lot of people to sow division in society. As soon as you reach a 5% or 10% threshold, let alone uh, the sort of proportions as we've actually managed to see in a few Western European countries where such extremist positions took, uh, and, and became you know, sufficiently popular for politicians representing them, ending up with you know, double-digit percent support to the ballot box. Um, at, at, at that point, it becomes particularly problematic. Right? Uh, the other aspect of it is, of course, the re-import of news from the West into, say, Russia, or the reuse, the recycling um, of such reporting by uh, Russian misinformation and uh, disinformation um, centers, right? They very much like to say, oh, look, even such and such major Western outlet admits to Russia being in the right and, say, Ukraine or the West being in the wrong, or NATO being in the wrong, um, and then additionally misusing and uh, reusing, re-importing uh, such information for their own uh, for their own benefit in different information spaces. Crypto. Hi, thank you. Um, I just wanted to talk about this claim of, um, of Ukraine selling the weapons that is being sent. Um, from what I see, uh, this is one of this is going to be one of two things. Um, either it's going to be uh, Russia outright outright lying, um, or it's a scam, because. From what I can see, and this is coming from RT themselves, they um, they claim to have blown the lid wide, uh, blown it all wide open that uh, Ukraine's selling all its javelins and stuff. Um, in fact, all of this was gathered from one message sent to them. I think it was through Signal, an encrypted uh, messaging app, um, saying, "Send us a deposit, and we'll send you the javelin." So. From what I can see, it's just RT admitting that one of their reporters got scammed. Um, and let's not forget that in about five minutes, you can go on a darknet marketplace 
and create a listing for a Russian S400 system. And via Russian logic, that's proof that Russia's selling their S400s. Like, it's crazy. Like, they've got such a low bar for proof that a screenshot from a darknet marketplace is literally all they have. That is the best thing they have to prove this. So, yeah, the fact that Financial Times is reporting on this, giving it any kind of credibility, is fucking infuriating. I'm done. Thank you, Crypto. Um, I'll, I'll pile on on this a little bit further. So there, there's, a, there's a few other things that uh, various Russian media sources have been reporting. They have reported, among other, uh, that uh, the Ukrainian troops have sold the Russians, I think, an aggregate of seven Caesar uh, self-propelled guns by now, a uh, couple of HIMARS, um, some anti-air defense assets, um, a bunch of tanks that they were given uh, by Poland, for example, and a few by the Czechs, you know. Um, of course, none of there, there's no pictorial proof ever of uh, Russians having these. Uh, there's no pictorial proof ever of Russians using these. Uh, they just keep claiming that Ukrainians are selling them all sorts of stuff because that's all they, they have is these manufactured claims, which have no basis in reality whatsoever. Um, and they'll keep doing this because, I don't know, it feeds, it feeds their own domestic propaganda a little bit. Not, not entirely sure. Um, what we have had yesterday, however, maybe two days ago, uh, is a Bel- one of the Belarusian um, soldiers that was sent to demonstrate on the Belarusian side of the border uh, to tie up uh, Ukrainian troops has actually uh, literally illegally crossed the border and defected to Ukraine because he wants to go and fight for Ukraine instead of uh, sitting on the Belarusian side of the border tying up Ukrainian troops. Uh, you know, there's some there's sometimes. Uh, what should we say, uh, good things that come out of that as well. Um, but no, Russians have a propensity to claim any, you know, um, uh, U- Ukrainian incompetency or uh, Ukrainian mismanagement, uh, whereas it's their ammo depots that are getting blown up uh, left and right by exactly those same Ukrainian-operated HIMARS systems that have been uh, so uh, excellently equipped and donated and trained on by uh, uh, by the US, for example, among other, West, among other Western countries who are donating them to 70M and the rest. Um, the Russians claim that they've actually bought off the Ukrainians for uh, peanuts, uh, which they haven't, otherwise they wouldn't keep blowing up Russian ammo depots. Right? Simple as that. Uh, JJ? Just kind of building on this topic, um, besides the Walter report, um, I know Western media sources that I can trust for factual information, but I'd love to hear um, yours and Axel's recommendations in terms of um, Ukrainian sources, whether that be that um, you have to run it through a translator or English version so that we can be sure that the information that we're getting is accurate. So if you want um, the really baseline of news, uh, UKRinform.net. Uh, is is a good start. Um, it's a, it's kind of the Ukrainian equivalent of the AP or Reuters or anything like that. They tend to have relatively boring reporting most of the time, but at least it's very much factually correct. Uh, beyond that, you can have a look at the Kiev Independent or the Kiev Post, uh, both of which are uh, pretty good sources as well. Uh, there's also tsn.ua, uh, which you might find useful. Uh, for more of this, if we can get perhaps Slava Ukraini up, uh, there might be uh, more sources that I cannot think uh, of right now off the top of my head, but 
uh, a Ukrainian contributor might be a little bit more familiar with it might pull up a few additional ones. Um, but absolutely, if, if, at the very least, what I would suggest you do is go to the Walter Report account. Uh, there's a lot of retweets and a lot of uh, quote tweets that uh, Walter does uh, of various Ukrainian sources, and that might give you a good idea of which Ukrainian sources to be listening to as well. There's also um, Euromaidan Press, or Euromaidan Press, and Euromaidan PR. Uh, those are pretty good ones and in English as well. Uh, I shouldn't have forgotten those. Um, what I would avoid that some people quite like to listen to or, or quite like to read are a few aggregators such as Nechta or Nexta, it looks like Nexta, uh, or Truha uh, TV. Uh, you know, sometimes they aggregate things a little bit quicker uh, and they're a little bit more unverified than some others. So maybe they're not the best. Uh, the best ones to rely upon always. You might get information there a little bit more quickly than elsewhere, but it will require you to verify the information, and double check and double check the sourcing uh, more uh, than with, for example, uh, very, very steady agencies such as UKR Inform. Um, so it's all it's all about a balance of things here, right? If you want to just make sure that everything that you read is, is fine and checked and pre-checked ahead of time, maybe uh, sources like UKR and Forum are good for you. Uh, but if you just want uh, some information unverified as quickly as possible, that's easier to, to find, right? Uh, people scraping, say, various Telegram channels and uh, early reporting. Uh, but beware that often those reports are not fully verified as yet and that they're aggregated from other sources, which might not necessarily be transparently stated. Um, Slavo Karini, if you want to... Uh, add a little bit to, to my answer. What would you say? Who else would you recommend? Uh, I'm sorry, still having an issue with the Twitter. I have a few moments. Thank you. I did actually talk to Slava last night, and um, he did recommend the UKR.net, but um, I will be interested to hear if he does have any additional sources this morning. Um, I think it's best to have a variety for sure. So uh, I will add uh, like a bit information how, how I see uh, how. Ukrainian informational space is formed. So how, how it looks for me, uh, it looks like this way. So we have this marathon. He is really credible because it's like a from the source. It's raw. You We have this uh, right uh, from the people uh, who can uh, interview from the people from the front, from the government officials, from the other journalists. It's right away, it's raw, but it's, it's in Ukrainian. So I start to listen it like maybe a month ago, like a concert, all this news. Previously, I was listening like a, on occasion when I, I'm making a coffee, there is a news, some uh, uh, notes about the alerts, because it's like a, for us, it's like a service. It's going to be like a, some program, but if there is uh, alerts about the uh, siren in some oblast, right away it's interrupted and uh, attention to the old people, go in hiding, go to the safe place. <clears throat> so it's like us right from the source, it's completely credible, but Ukrainian you should like uh, or understand and a lot of the, uh, like uh, what I notice in the Twitter, it's a lot of people just do the same thing, like like me. They listen to this and they post it like a translating into English because it's like a, the same. It's just when you I hear it, it's right away on the Twitter. 
um, then there is independent journalists uh, also a lot of these great journalists independent they work in the ukrainian language so again you should like um <laughs> don't know maybe voice translator maybe some future so use because a lot of the information is like a uh, 